do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Today in the podcast, a deep dive into how to make agroforestry investable for institutional investors. We will discuss how my guest raised 200 million from a German pension fund and has been investing most of it in the past three years in large-scale sustainable agroforestry. We will touch upon the fascinating world of aromatic cacao, coconuts, holistic thinking, organic dates, nuts and reforestation. I hope you enjoyed this slightly longer interview as we had so much to unpack on how to put trillions to work in trees. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our Patreon community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or find the link below. Thank you. My next guest is Chief Project Officer at 123 the pioneers in making sustainable forestry and agriculture projects investable at a large scale. Welcome, Oliver. Hello, Kun. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. I think we're going to have a lot to discuss, a lot to have a conversation about, about institutional investments in regenerative agriculture and forestry. But first of all, a personal question, what brings you to the space of large-scale agroforestry projects and the investment side of things? (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me, first of all. It's a good question. I mean, it's not like I've been in the space of agriculture or forestry all my life. So if I look back at my career, I've actually, as people often say, have been on the dark side. So I've been involved in finance and private banking, uh, started actually in in real estate. And um, about 10 years ago, I'd say I decided to actually move away from that side, but not entirely. Obviously, it's still very much part of my daily job, but to focus on the topic of sustainable asset management, on creating a value proposition, obviously, with my colleagues, how sustainable or regenerative agriculture and sustainable forestry models can be made investable at large scale by institutional investors. And that is, if you want, so the intellectual answer. So uh, I saw a real need for that. And um, we think that one to three um, provides an answer in that space that hasn't been yet provided by many organizations. It's the answer to the question, how can I invest considerable funds, let's say 50 million or $100 million or more in projects that uh, are operating uh, according to sustainable land use practices? On a more emotional level, I think it's just the state of the world out there and to do the best and to contribute as much as possible, basically be a net contributor rather than 
to actually use up the resources. And um, that's what made me come into this space. And um, uh, in the last years, we did see the whole space to gain a lot of traction. That's good to see. And uh, obviously, it's also positive for my personal life decisions to show that um, that was a, a good decision to make. And I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but we're, we have time, so we're going to do that. Sure. Can you give a short, short overview? I know one, two, three quite well, I feel, and I will definitely share your impact report, which you made public, I think at the end of last year or somewhere, I think in fall of last year, I will share that below. Uh, can you share, give a short intro into one, two, three? What is it? Yeah. What is it not? <laughs> On that impact report. So that what you saw was just the uh, executive summary, basically the pre uh, version. So I, I can happily announce that we just, as per this week, we completed the full report. I'm very happy to share that. Ah, wow. Yeah, because I love the summary, very visual, very detailed for a summary, but I'm, I'm definitely going to dive into the, the full report. Okay. So to your question, what is one to three? So one to three is um, uh, based in Germany. It's a German company. Well, German company. We're an uh, international company, of course. And we, we focus on developing large-scale uh, agroforestry models, mostly, and forestry projects, predominantly in Latin America, but more and more so also uh, in Africa, that uh, combine traditional land use practices, uh, agroforestry practices, but at the same time embrace modern research, modern precision agriculture principles, and show or try to demonstrate that this type of agriculture and forestry can be done at large scale, that it can be, can be done in a profitable way, that it can be done in a very socially responsible and um, ecological way. And... Um, to make this available to large institutional investors such as pension funds, endowments, foundations, asset managers, insurers, who are seeking to um, deploy considerable funds in this kind of space, but are limited by the, say, traditional impact investment industry, which uh, is doing great things, but it's doing it at a much smaller scale. So if I want to invest 50 million euro, into a project or several projects, then there's a real limitation in the market to do that. So we are an investment advisor. We've built a very efficient uh, asset management platform for that and a very detailed um, um, investment process with a very good team uh, based in Berlin. But we're also a project developer and we do the project supervision uh, locally. Uh, so we have a lot of people experts on the ground, agronomists, foresters, technicians who supervise the projects that we develop together with our local implementation partners. And that's how we operate, basically. It's a combination. And I think in, in that sense, it is very rare still to have that strong asset management uh, capability and at the same time, very in-depth, on-the-ground agricultural management expertise. So that's what we try to combine, and uh, that's what we're doing since we set up the company at the end of 2016. Yeah, so basically, we're getting into the fourth year, which is exactly when I, I, I set up the podcast, funny enough, which is <laughs> the two, two of them are not connected, but the end of 16 was an interesting uh, period. And you've done so with a lot of success so far, or at least success in terms of committed capital and invested capital. I think I 
So in the summary of the impact report, you have 200 million committed and 130, so 130 million invested in the past three years. Probably a lot of people on the podcast think, wow, that sounds like a lot of money, obviously, for institutional investment sizes, that is not so much. But in the agroforestry space, that's enormous. Can you walk us through or explain a bit how that happened and how in the last three years you, you've had so many commitments or commitments for so much money and also the investment side of things? How do you deploy 130 million in three years? Well, yeah, that's enough for three podcasts, I guess. But um, well, I'm back. Well, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> so no, you're right. That's exactly uh, one of the key problems. So for the agroforestry space, this is a vast amount of money. For institutional investors, it's well, it still is a lot of money and a considerable ticket. But um, comparing it to the the billions that, let's say, a pension fund has to invest, uh, it's a relatively small amount. Um, but uh, yeah, it, how, did we, how did we come about this? Um, it's not something that happened overnight. It was actually a very long process um, that went into it. Uh, a lot of pitching, a lot of uh, education also uh, in the sense of explaining uh, what is agroforestry, what is um, permaculture, what is regenerative agriculture. Um, and why is this better than, um, let's say, a, a traditional timber investment into, I don't know, pulp and paper? So it's not like um, pension funds or insurers, uh, large asset managers haven't invested in in, um, in forestry before or also in agriculture, but uh, obviously more in conventional projects. Uh, in production and um, to explain and to convince them that this can be done in a very different way. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. What do you say then to like, imagine I'm a, a German pension fund or a Dutch pension fund, or let's say one of the pension funds that's not really known to be super pioneering because they shouldn't, They're, they should be conservative with managing our pensions. Mm -hmm. And they are used to maybe some agriculture investments and timber investments, but they never combined it to, maybe they have heard of agroforestry, but they're not very, they, they're not really sure what that is. How do you have that conversation about the returns are there, the future is going there, what is permaculture, what is soil? What's the starting point of how are those conversations going? Well, I mean, I, I guess you have to start with um, the topics that they care about most, and that is um, what are their objectives? I mean, as you rightly say, they are responsible for um, the pension monies of, uh, of, of thousands of people. And rightly so, you don't want them to, to play around with that. So they are very risk averse. At the same time, they uh, have uh, return objectives that they need to achieve uh, in, a, in a world, in an investment climate that since years uh, is uh, becoming more and more difficult. So there has been a general move towards alternative investments, towards liquid investments, which were unthinkable at this scale uh, for pension funds uh, uh, and in, let's say, in large mandates um, some years ago. But now it's common practice that people uh, invest in illiquid 
uh, investments that they invest in, let's say, renewable energy projects uh, that they invest in emerging markets, because that's where they can still generate a, a return for their uh, beneficiaries. Now, keeping that in mind, um, if you so that should make it easier for for our kind of topic because that's all what we do. You know, those are if you look at a large um, agroforestry project, it is at its core. First of all, it's an infrastructure project, and it's in typically in emerging markets. Um, it's uh, agriculture, which uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in, in, in the case of our topics such as um, uh, cacao and coffee and uh, coconut palm oil production and things like that. Uh, it takes years before you actually have production. So all these topics are, you know, each piece of that are known elements to um, uh, institutional investment managers. Uh, it's just maybe the combination plus the added pressure of, you know, converting to something more sustainable, to something um, climate positive than rather climate negative, if you want. So uh, that is a new dimension to them. But you also have to see that there's a lot of regulatory pressure coming now to the institutional investment world um, to follow uh, or to implement ESG principles, um, to uh, properly assess uh, impact and to, to, uh, to look into, into your climate risks, basically, and to make them transparent. And there will be, a, uh, there will be a, a lot of additional regulation in this space. So there is a real interest to learn more about this. And, uh, and that's where you have to get them. And um, you're absolutely right. Maybe the, the German market, as an example, uh, isn't as advanced when it comes to these topics as uh, the UK, uh, the Netherlands and the Nordics, um, to point them out, and also Switzerland, uh, let's say generally speaking, is, uh, is quite um, uh, at the forefront of, of sustainable asset management not necessarily the institutional investors there. But so after a lot of education, probably a number of trips to interesting examples, because you have a background in sustainable forestry management, uh, you convinced this German pension fund to commit 200 million mm -hmm. and you get to work. So what, how does it look like? What kind of, can you give an example of an agroforestry project that you bought, invested in, and how does the change look like basically since you came in? Sure. Okay. So, as you said, it's um, for the agroforestry space, 200 million is a tremendous amount of money. As there aren't that many projects out there at large scale, and in, in our case, um, the, the kind of projects that we like to implement, they, they focus a lot on, on, on cacao, which is um, uh, one of our core competency also on the, on the technical group sides. So our, our operations team is had a, has a lot of cacao uh, management uh, expertise, but also many other tropical crops. And typically the development of these um, um, projects is rather capital intensive. So um, uh, tree orchards are, to develop tree orchards is, 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 is much more expensive than uh, annual uh, crop production. Um, and so we're, we're talking about areas of, let's say, 1,000 to 5,000 hectares and not necessarily tens, uh, tens of thousands of hectares uh, that you may develop in, in, in other crops. Um, so how do you go about this? I mean, um, the, the value proposition is obviously to turn degraded land into 
highly productive land to bring it back into agricultural production, ideally. Under best circumstances, we start with degraded cattle uh, land, if you want to, Um, so that not only we replace um, um, cattle raising with with, uh, an agroforestry system, but we also bring um, highly compacted and, and degraded soil back into production. Um, so you need to find appropriate um, um, project areas or pieces of land, and that is where, where it starts. So you need people on the ground. We are very focused um, on, uh, let's say, Central America and northern parts of Latin America. Um, and uh, it starts with your pipeline of projects. You have, to, you have to do land scouting. You have to find appropriate sites. You have to build a network. You have to identify... Uh, a suitable um, projects that uh, lend themselves to to the business model that you have in mind, um, and you start um, acquiring them or establishing a lease model. So we're we're not very dogmatic about uh, does land have to be acquired or or should it be a lease or a usufruct model. You know, it form follows function here. Uh, you do the best possible uh, setup. And uh, so we established um, a project pipeline. We selected the the best prospective sites to start with. We focused obviously on countries where we already had teams in place, which was in uh, in Panama and in Colombia. Uh, in particular, Colombia is obviously a, a vast uh, country full of opportunity, a place that we like a lot. And um, you start building from there. So overall, we have now invested in in seven countries and uh, 12 projects that are uh, now uh, under our belt, if you want so, ranging in in size uh, and investment. Uh, So we started with some smaller ones, and the biggest investment that we made was in the range of um, 40 million US dollars, so quite a sizable investment. Um, And... um, that's that's that was only possible by being very focused on on the land scouting to have a dedicated project development team uh, to find good partners trusted partners i always say without trusted partners you you're lost you have no chance of success you cannot do everything yourself you have to rely on local knowledge expertise so you have to find these people uh, who you can partner with uh, who will develop uh, new production with you, and um, that's that's that was the the starting point, you know, to find the right suitable land. Um, now we've done this for three years, which was a tremendous amount of work for the entire organization. We're now uh, we're now almost thirty five people, I think. Let's say two thirds of them uh, being in the project countries, and, and one third being at headquarters in, in, in Europe. But now the real challenge starts, which is uh, we have started to develop these projects. We have bought farms and we convert them to more sustainable. And how does that look like? Like you buy, I mean, you can do, of course, a concrete example or like a cattle farm rundown. Like what's the change you see? We're obviously in audio, so be as visual as you can be of what can we see the changes that are already happening and that are happening in the future for somebody that probably hasn't seen, let's say, large-scale agroforestry projects up close. Yeah, sure. 
I give you two examples because we do two different things. One thing is we buy farms that are, you know, running, doing conventional agriculture, and they're trying their best, but they're struggling. So we find these sort of opportunities for conversion, you know, to make them more socially responsible, uh, to bring up just, you know, produce better quality and more of it, uh, but to do it in, in a resource efficient fashion. Uh, maybe I'll give you one example on that. And then the other is that we develop entirely new production. So um, that's in, in a way that is almost easier for us because you start with a, a white sheet of paper or with a, a green field, so a green field project, basically. Yeah, basically the, the reforestation part versus the better forest management or better land management, as you mentioned. But two examples would be great. Yeah, yeah both is important. So I'll give you one example for a farm conversion. So... Um, uh, we bought um, in 2018, uh, we bought a, a cocoa farm in the north of uh, Colombia. Project is called Macancal. And um, it's, it's basically, it's a, it's a monoculture that was planted in a way that uh, wasn't bad, you know, uh, producing CCN 51, which is, uh, let's say, uh, bulk cocoa. So not particularly fine flavor type of cocoa. But it's it's yielding well, and uh, they they installed it in a in a good way. It was um, designed to be mechanized as well. Uh, in principle, a good farm, but they ran into real operational problems uh, with changing climate patterns. So um, more and more extended drought periods, uh, and during an extended El Nino period, basically the the water concept failed. They ran dry and a very large part of uh, the plantation died. There's just not enough water. So there was an irrigation system, but there wasn't enough water to, to feed it. Another contributor, funnily enough, this was in uh, Farmer Farc conflict area in Colombia. And with the conflict being resolved largely and, and sort of peace uh, um, coming back to the region, there's also more and more agriculture happening again, and basically uh, more water being taken out of the of the of the rivers that feed the farm. So you know many con reasons contributed to that. So uh, what did we do? So we bought this farm, and uh, how we typically approach this is that we have different phases that we look at. So the first phase, which is obviously the most important one, is to immediately stop destructive practices. Um, that means introducing uh, proper waste management, introducing recycling, obviously looking at work contracts, employment conditions. So uh, all of our workers have uh, social insurance and health insurance. So that is something that needs to happen immediately. It's obviously about safety at work. So we're looking as quickly as possible at uh, health and safety procedures, you know, issuing protective gear, uh, looking at the machinery that is being used, um, starting with with courses, education. Uh, you may argue, well, all of that, which is which is good good agricultural practice uh, under a certified operation. Well, that is true, but uh, in practice, it often doesn't happen, and it often even doesn't happen on on certified uh, farms, and you know that as well. So that is something that we immediately do. We look at the for workforce. We, we talk to them. You, you may be surprised how much of an impact that had. Many of the workers who'd been there for, for decades, they told us, listen, this is the first time actually a boss talks to us, like uh, an investor, an owner, 
uh, asks me what I think, um, what could be done better. Uh, and um, that's what our regional managers did. They went there, they opened a dialogue, they uh, asked what can be done. Uh, we, um, we hired um, two HR uh, personnel with a, a psychological background um, to work on, on uh, various problems uh, in the farm, but also you know, in the families and the communities surrounding. Um, and that, I didn't even talk yet about the agriculture, you know, that's just the, the social work that needs to be done immediately. Um, when it comes to agriculture, then it's a bit more difficult. So here we had a massive water problem and we needed to replant some area. So first thing was to uh, obtain construction permit to, to build a large uh, rainwater catchment area and a reservoir, which, um, which we did. And uh, so we stabilized the water situation by basically investing quite a considerable amount of money into a large reservoir. Uh, improving the efficiency of the installed irrigation system, so just improving the the way water is used, and how to how to catch it and to to uh, store it. Um, and now that we have uh, completed that, we can actually focus on on changing the production system itself. Also, I mentioned at the beginning, it's a monoculture. But they're good trees, you know, they've been stressed, of course, but they are yielding. They're not yet that old that we need to rip them out. Uh, so we're focusing on gradual improvement rather than radical change. You know? So we, we focused a lot on the health of the trees. We focus, generally speaking, a lot on the health of the soil. So um, very um, to implement very precise uh, fertigation programs and, and uh, work a lot with uh, soil analysis to to really have a precise uh, nutrition plan for for the farm, and um, that is currently what we're doing. So there's a lot of quality work going in at the moment to to bring up the quality of the crop. Um, we we build a lot of infrastructure uh, when it comes to post harvest. So uh, basically, um, uh, to 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 dry and or to ferment and dry the cocoa in a controlled environment uh, rather than just uh, uh, on the ground, as it was done before, or it was even sold wet uh, to local traders. Um, so uh, we always focus on premium because the, the way we uh, produce is more expensive, maybe. So we, we focus on producing premium products that can be exported. And, and those are the things that are currently on the way uh, at this particular farm. So um, you can imagine... Uh, it's quite a lot of work. We 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 kept the uh, original management team. It was a very good management team, I have to say. They just didn't have the opportunity to actually implement the suggestions suggestions that they were making themselves uh, with with the old owners. You know? So, uh, given the right support, consultants, advice, um, access to resources and knowledge, they turned this around rather quickly, and it's already. Uh, a model case, I would say, for a conversion. And where do you see that going? Because you mentioned it's currently a monoculture. It's not a very, it was focused on much more of a bulk cocoa. Mm -hmm. Do you see this going much more complex, less of a monoculture? I mean, a number of the trees died, so you are replanting. And um, wh what do you see this going in like five to 10 years? 
Well, that's our opportunity. So as I said, I'm not going to start rip out thousands of trees just because I want a biodiverse um, system. Um, but whenever we get the opportunity, and here we do have an opportunity because um, many of the trees died or were severely stressed um, so that they stopped producing, uh, we get a chance to replant. And we're replanting with aromatic cacao. We're introducing uh, shade trees. What is aromatic cacao? Just for a non-chocolate, because I've, I've been in the office, just a bit of background. I've been in the office of 123 and they know a lot about chocolate, like a lot of flavors. Uh, they can test chocolate in very interesting ways. But I, I also, I'm aware that maybe not everyone on the podcast is a maybe a chocolate fan, but not a chocolate expert. So what is aromatic cacao? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, we tend to forget that not everyone is fanatic about uh, chocolate and cacao. So, um well, I mean, obviously, there is um, the cacao industry or the chocolate industry uh, uh, is um, is um, full of flaws, and I mean, we we could talk about that for hours as well. But uh, let's say there is a there's a bulk market which um, produces the kind of uh, cocoa that goes into your mass market products is mixed with a lot of milk and sugar, uh, and there the flavor doesn't actually matter that much. So if you if you eat your typical mass bar. Snickers, that kind of thing. Yes, there's chocolate in there, there's cocoa in there, but the, the, the cocoa content is, is, is very low. So how that cacao actually, what the flavor profile of that is, it doesn't matter. To these producers, uh, the homogeneity uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of the product is more important than the actual flavor. Uh, there's a different segment, which is called fine flavor cocoa or aromatic cocoa, uh, which is um, what people get passionate about. So um, you have a lot of cocoa varieties that well, cocoa comes originally from the Amazon rainforest. And um, as with most crops, people pick the ones that are most sturdy and are high yielding, but don't necessarily have the, the best flavor profile. Uh, that went into mass production. But if you're passionate about cocoa, then you have a lot of single origins and uh, very different types of flavors. And we, we always compare it to wine. You know, it's as complex as wine. You, you can talk about it for, for hours. I was going to say it, yeah. Um, so people talk about single domain, if you want so, or single estate cocoa um, that, that comes from one particular farm. And then there are a lot of different clones and, and uh, so-called criollos, basically wild varieties that, that are grown somewhere, which can have real, create real flavor explosions in your mouth. So it's, it's, um, it's quite interesting. As with anything, if you dig into it, there is a world to be explored. So um, it's just as interesting as, as wine production or, or or coffee, some people. Are, oh, coffee! Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, definitely. Some people are, are passionate about coffee, and yeah. it's very, it's very similar here. So, that's the market. I think that's your opportunity, right? You see this. The co the cocoa market is moving. Yes, yeah, so, probably. I don't know how many years, but a bit behind coffee. That that has seen an explosion in single origin, uh, extreme special roasting. A lot of very very enthusiastic people, and you see sort of the chocolate market moving after that as well, or the cacao market. But on the production side, I'm imagining that's your gap. That's where you're stepping in, that there's not a lot of this aromatic cacao at a large scale to be sold to the single bar or bean-to-bar makers around the world. 
Well, that's the thing. So, I mean, first of all, these single, uh, or let's say bean to bar makers are basically controlling the whole uh, process from the bean to the final chocolate bar. Um, there are obviously a lot of these, uh, let's say, very motivated and, and great companies who produce, but they, you know, they need a couple of tons a year to produce their chocolate. And that's typically then dark chocolate, so they, they don't mix it with a lot of sugar and, and, and milk. It goes up to 100%, which is, to be honest, 100% cocoa content. That's a bit too tough for me. But That's interesting. I've done a tasting, and, and you could see, I think, half of the room really couldn't. There was too much. I liked it, but it's, yeah, it stays with you for, I think, a half an hour after you taste it. It stays with you for a while. But so there's a lot of people who produce these amazing products, and yes, we're, we're producing for them. But there's also a segment, and that's really what we're focusing on, uh, where the large and medium-sized chocolate makers are coming in. And they also produce great products, you know, great dark chocolates, single-origin chocolates. Um, and they need something else. They need, uh, let's say, the same, the same interesting flavor profile, but they need a co very consistent quality um, and the same sort of flavor profile year on year on year. Whereas if you're your sort of the small manufacturer, well, you buy an amazing harvest from this one estate. And if that particular estate doesn't produce the same quality next year, then you buy it from somewhere else, basically. And then your products taste a bit different. And you can, you know, there's a lot of storytelling and you can explain what you're doing. If you are, I don't know, Uh, one of the big chocolate companies, I don't want to even start naming them here, then uh, uh, you need very consistent products that, you know, uh, can, uh, can be sourced from, uh, from ideally from a single partner such as us. And the same for investors, I think, yeah. because if you're the estate owner and one year you're great and you sell to this amazing bean to bar in Germany company and the next year it's not great. That just doesn't work for institutional investors because you need the stability also there. That's exactly it. So you have a lot of different factors. And maybe, you know, if you look at the prices in, in, in the fine flavor or aromatic uh, cocoa uh, world, just to give you a reference. So let's say the, the, the bulk traded cocoa, it trades at $2,500 per ton cocoa. The most sought after um, cocoa varieties which may where you have a farm that only produces one ton maybe a year or so huh? or a smallholder program you know uh, um, that only produces one ton of cocoa a year that can sell up to twenty thirty thousand dollars for that particular ton you know? wow uh, there are people who, who pay that much and there are some people who pay more than that that's not the segment that we're focusing on You know, that's like wine uh, where you have these you know, amazing bottles where there's only very few of them and people pay a fortune for that. Uh, what we're focusing on is this premium, very aromatic, very quality segment. But that can, um, you know, where, where there's volume to actually turn that into a co consistent production line and where you build long lasting partnerships with buyers who are looking exactly for that. They give you the quality specifications and the flavor profile that they're after. And we have the team and the experts to implement that and to maintain it, you know, and that you cannot expect from, let's say, the, the small, very passionate farmer who's doing an amazing job on his, on his few hectares. Uh, and he'll turn out an amazing product one year and the next year, well, I don't know, something went wrong in his process. So. And so that's the idea with the better forest management is to 
slowly transition this farm, but the other ones you've bought or leased for a long time towards this mass and quality. Does it mean you're going to slowly replace the monoculture trees or the, let's say the, the bulk variety that's mainly done this farm so far, mainly has been on this farm so far? Is that a gradual process that will take over the full landscape? Well, it's a gradual process, but also um, you can do a lot with the with what you have. I mean, eighty percent. Well, don't 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 quote me on this, but let's say eighty percent of the actual flavor actually comes out in the processing. Wow! So the, after what you were mentioning, some they were you used to be selling it yeah. wet, and you're actually processing it on the farm in a consistent way. So quality matters in the way how you ferment it, how you dry it, you know, uh, how you take care of it. And then later, how you, how, what you do with that, how you process it, uh, that really matters. So you start with good genetic material, yes, but uh, then the quality kicks in, basically. It's, uh, it, it comes from the process, um, as with many things. And um, so you can, you can still improve, even with the, let's say, bulk cocoa quality, you can do great things. You, know, you can improve that, and uh, there are producers out there who, who pay for quality, uh, also in the bulk market. And that's what we're aiming for with this farm. And in terms of monoculture, you mentioned obviously introducing other trees on the cocoa side of things. Are you planning to, or already did, introduce other, uh, let's say, other crops to make the system also less drought prone, more complex, etc.? Absolutely. So we are, I mean, it's a process that is currently still undergoing. So the first thing we did was massively prune everything back. Work on the water installation, and now we uh, we built up the, the the nursery, and we got all of this in there to, first of all, introduce um, shade trees to the cocoa. Um, so we're, we're planning um, some uh, planting some uh, glyrosidia, which helps fixing nitrogen into the soil, and uh, we planted a uh, a plantain plot basically, uh, which is for use of the farm workers and their families. Um, so we're not necessarily doing that uh, for, for commercial reasons. That has more of a social aspect to it. Um, and the, the areas that died off, uh, they'll be replanted with a um, cocoa cover tree model, but focusing on, um, as I mentioned, the fine flavor aromatic varieties, which, uh, which come from that, uh, that area of Colombia. Um, where for that farm we're not going to introduce other crops because it's it's already a mature production system as such. Uh, but when it is about time to rejuvenate and replace the trees, then we will uh, completely revamp um, the uh, entire production model. But it's not at this age yet, uh, so um, we're we're trying to maintain it, uh, improve it, uh, and work more on the social side of things. You know, for this particular farm. And these kind of projects, what's the, I wouldn't say life cycle, but what's the horizon you're thinking at? Is it 10, 20 years? How long do you plan to be owners of a plantation like that? And thus, how long, how many cycles can you do? Or how, how long can you actually think and plan when it comes to, in this case, this farm, but let's say the farms in general? Yeah, well, there's a bit of dispute around that, but um, we, can, we can certainly say that a well-maintained uh, cocoa plant uh, can produce at, at high levels um, for 30 years, um, possibly longer, you know, up to 50 years. And if you uh, rejuvenate it well uh, and you uh, maintain it well, 
then that could be much much longer but uh, we'll probably replace it after after 30 years so. since february 2019 more than 40 people from all over the world have joined our patreon community if you're one of them thank you for your support without people like you the stories of region egg and food could not be told Discover the tiers and exclusive benefits of joining our Patreon community, like Q&A webinars and a dedicated Slack channel and much more on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the link below. And you as an investor, what's your horizon as a fund, as the asset manager? Well, it depends what your objective is. So, I mean, basically once you've made, uh, planting cocoa is, is quite capital intensive, in particular if if you do it like we do it, uh, with, with, with ir irrigation and a lot of sort of uh, uh, mechanization as well um, to, uh, to um, focus on the quality, as I said, uh, then that comes at a considerable cost. So you could um, say that a, a, a hectare of cocoa uh, development will cost you, let's say, twelve to $15,000. Um, now, most of that investment happens up front. Uh, in the first two years or so. Uh, so once you've made that investment, then you have a productive sy system. After three, four years, the cocoa starts producing. And then if you maintain it well, it will yield for, let's say, another 25 years or so, at least. So you can stay in there, and that's going to be profitable and attractive. Uh, but um, there's also a market um, of, of buyers who are looking to invest in established, uh, sustainable, high-yielding production systems. And there aren't that many out there. You know, there are a few, and uh, some of them we bought and others we decided against. Um, but generally speaking, uh, the cocoa market is a, is a still very medieval kind of uh, market dominated by small producers who are working on two, three hectares of land. Um, so you have six million small farmers and very few uh, processors who actually buy the product. So very unjust market. Uh, but uh, that's not the topic here. That's uh, for another podcast. Yeah. For another podcast, yes. I'm making a list of follow-up ones. Definitely let me know in, in the comments below. Uh, should we do another one on a deep dive into cocoa on the unjustness? I think it's extremely interesting. But let's keep that for another time. Yeah. So um, what I wanted to talk about here more is more, you could either seek an exit. So typically you have either investors who like to develop new projects, you know, be it in real estate, be it in agriculture, whatever. Or and renewable energy, because it sounds very similar to it's very similar. where the market was, I think, a number of years ago. You you build these projects, a solar farm, wind farm, etc. Yeah. You build them and hold them for a long time. That could be your model. Or you build and sell once they're up and running and, and the big risk is done and you might sell them actually too. Maybe we come back to that. The institutional investor side of things that want assets that are yielding over a long 25-year period. Obviously, ag is different than energy, and but um, different than real estate as well. But it's very similar, I think, in terms of mechanics. Well, I think the mechanics, you're, you're, very, you're, define, you're describing it very well. Uh, I think the mechanics of investment are the same in all these um, real assets projects. You, know? um, you have someone who takes a developer risk and that person expects to be remunerated for that for that risk, basically to, to achieve a premium. Um, and very few sort of develop from scratch and then I stay in there for 20, 30 years. Uh, I think most, um, if it's at least from an investor point of view, 
they do that, they expect that premium and they seek an exit after a number of years. And in, uh, in our space, we identified sort of five to seven years as a, as a good time to exit and to maximize value, basically, once you have a fully productive system there. Um, but then there are others who, um, who don't want that kind of profile, um, who are more, let's say, annuity-oriented. So they're maybe not looking for the high returns or the very high returns that a development premium would give you. Uh, they're more looking for stable returns, dividend payout every year, and that is what a farm gives you. You know, if you have a, a stable farm that is well maintained, um, using the best technology and monitoring uh, uh, and, and out there, uh, having good processes, then you have a very stable production system. Now, if you pair that with a good offtake agreement that gives you stability on the price, then you have a fairly de-risked investment. So if you buy such a farm or invest in such a farm, um, then that gives you an annual return. That is, well, it's obviously it's not the same. I mean, uh, we are still in agriculture and there's weather and things such as that. But um, generally speaking, you have something that is relatively predictable. And uh, that is something that many um, investors are looking for. Uh, and that would be the typical market for the developer uh, to, to basically sell a fully functioning, well-maintained and productive system to someone who's more interested in that second part of the cash flow. And the German pension fund, uh, you're a large investor. With them, are you more on the develop and sell or the develop and hold uh, model, if you can share that a bit? Uh, we do both. That's uh, maybe not a very satisfactory answer, <laughs> but... Uh, I know it's fair enough. Uh, it's a it's mix. mix the risk and the return, probably. It's a mix, basically. And, and what kind of return targets are you in generally focusing on? Because I think it's something we talked in the pre-conversation is that for a lot of people, it's difficult to imagine you can have, quote unquote, good returns in a sustainable way or in a regenerative way, both on the social and obviously on the environmental side of things. Mm -hmm. So just to have the return question out of the hand, because if I don't ask it, I'm sure I'm going to get... Um, some comments, what kind of returns in a well-managed, and we're going to get to the reforestation side later, but let's say on the, on the for on a well-managed or good, well-managed uh, forest uh, farm agroforestry system, what kind of returns in the cocoa market, obviously, depending on weather, et cetera, et cetera, what kind of returns should we think about or consider? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, sure. Well, first of all, let me say the question of profit is not a dirty one. You know, it's not... Uh, something that people should be ashamed of uh, when talking about sustainable land use. Um, I think part of sustainability is also that you have a viable business that generates a profit that can pay good salaries for its workers and that doesn't rely on, on grants uh, or such, on donors basically, because that will not change the world. You know, uh, you need profitable farming um, if you want to convince trillions of assets to be moved into the space and that is the objective i guess because uh, agriculture needs to change and it doesn't only need to change in small cocoa farms it needs to change on a massive scale and everywhere and so um, we believe that we need to demonstrate that sustainable farming practices um, are profitable um, and so uh, the uh, investor answer or the, the right answer to your question would be, it's always a question of 
return and risk. So you have to you have to look at that um, not in isolation. So a typical return, and that obviously depends on the crop. So we don't only produce cocoa. Uh, we also, for example, have uh, one of the largest uh, coconut plantations uh, in the world now, which we're currently rehabilitating. So there are a lot of different markets that we are in, and so there's also different different profitability. Um, so let's say if you develop a new system, you can expect a return, which is largely exit-driven because the first years you don't have production yet. Uh, you can have a return of, let's say, 12 to 20%. It could even be more. So that's really the build built from scratch and exit from scratch and an exit and when you hold it so when you buy it let's say i'm, I'm the buyer of that that exit and the i'm on the other side and then you hold it for let's say 25 years yeah so if you hold it then in that space you'll probably have a net investor return of six eight up to ten percent it depends how you produce where you produce what you produce huh? but um Sounds very similar to the renewable energy space a few years ago. I think now it's it's depending on where you are, obviously, as this as well, on your crop, industry or sunshine and wind. But it, it sounds very similar to those type of returns. Very interesting. No, it is. I think it is quite comparable, to be honest. And uh, the risks may be different. And um, the market is obviously different because in the renewable space, at least you got, you know, well, first of all, you got subsidies, which you don't really have here that much, at least not in the countries where we're active. But they're risky as well. They can change overnight, as many renewable energy investors in Spain found out where they retrospectively changed their... True, yeah. And there are still lawsuits being fought over that. So it's... I mean, I think the weather risk and the subsidy risk maybe are quite comparable. Yeah, no, that's true. Okay, so... Uh, but that gives you an indication of, of how this looks like. So the good thing is, obviously, if you have annual uh, dividend distributions of, I don't know, 5 6 7%, and you are a pension fund or an insurer or uh, an asset manager with certain return objectives, then this may be just the thing for you, you know, to buy yourself into an established or converted farm portfolio. And you have massive non-financial returns. I think the the impact returns and, and I mean, the amount of carbon being stored, the amount of work you provide or projects like this provide, and obviously the amount of food, and you can discuss if cocoa, just like wine, that's an absolute necessity in terms of food, but it's another, I think coconut oil already becomes a different product there, but it's something we consume in large, large quantities. And most of it is produced in a very extractive way. So replacing that with is providing a huge change on the non-financial return side. No, no, I, I fully agree. I mean, first of all, all our product, all our projects are, um, let's say, uh, net carbon positive, which is not... Uh, a given in agriculture, of course. Um, secondly, you made the point that, yes, obviously, uh, fine flavor chocolate uh, is um, uh, is a luxury product. It's not a staple food. Um, we're aware of that, but that's the great thing about agroforests. You know, if you, if you combine different components, and we do that in other projects than the one uh, I described, then uh, you uh, you can do do both. You can produce staple foods for the local market. You know, be it plantain, be it be it peas, be it uh, uh, mice, uh, corn, um, and you can combine that with um, with luxury products that uh, pay a premium and generate a higher income. Be it coffee, be it cocoa, be it uh, 
uh, rubber, uh, trees, um, what else do we produce? Caoutchouc, coconut oil, uh, many other things, you know. Um, and it's that combination that makes it so attractive because you can actually produce more and maybe also more meaningful uh, with less on the same piece of land. That's the core of agriculture that has to change. And I think also in the mind of people, like it is possible to layer, it is possible to produce a lot more. And the current, let's say, production numbers and yields we see in any crop are by definition not the the ultimate, like there's a lot more beyond that. And we see now examples in, in many, many different crops where people in a regenerative way, or at least a sustainable way, getting a lot more yield of different crops, have a more complex system of the same piece of land. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's very, as long as we don't see that, that at least there's the opportunity or the possibility of that. It's very difficult to sell between brackets, uh, sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture to investors, because if they don't believe that it's possible to go beyond monoculture cornfield, which they think is the most productive thing ever, then it's very difficult to get in between their ears that there's something beyond that or there are many opportunities beyond. But this is a great bridge to the reforestation example you were mentioning before. Can you paint a picture of what happens if you really start from scratch? Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you another example. I mean, it's, it's, we also have projects that focus on pure forestry, you know, where it's not about producing a crop or, or anything like that. But I wanted to give you another example, which I think is a real showcase for how to bring degraded areas back into production and make them meaningful again. So this is a project, uh, is Hacienda Ambrosia, which is in the Dominican Republic, in the north of the Dominican Republic. I just came back from there. Um, and what this is, is basically... Uh, a degraded coconut plantation. So someone assembled 30 years ago uh, and planted and and combined um, coconut production. Um, And it wasn't a fashionable product at the time. So nowadays, coconut oil, everyone knows it has got uh, health benefits and uh, it's it's, it's turned into a superfood. At the time, that was just a cheap source of fat, basically. Um, so that farm was developed. The market didn't turn out to be very uh, attractive and the owners more or less um, let it degrade because it wasn't worth continuing to, de- to produce. So that coconut plantation was forgotten. And um, we found it when we were land scouting in the Dominican Republic. What do you mean forgotten? Like people just forgot about that it existed? Well, it, it wasn't worth, the market wasn't attractive, so it wasn't worth farming it uh, in a sort of intensive way. And it didn't make sense to change it to another product. Um, yeah, it didn't make sense to change it. It's quite remote in that sense. So uh, road access wasn't good at the time. It's improved since, but it wasn't easy to get to that. And so they had other investments that they were looking at that were more promising and they didn't forget about it, but they didn't do anything with it, basically. So it, it overgrew. It's situated uh, beautifully at the end of a valley, um, nestled into the hills, um, adjacent to a, to a, to a um, research reserve. Um, there's a lot of water coming down the hills, basically. So you have to imagine this, this beautiful forest area with coconut palms in there with, with 12 rivulets 12 12 streams crossing the farm water rushing down it's raining a lot there 
so it's it's beautifully situated, but it's remote. There there aren't many people there, and it just wasn't worth uh, developing it uh, from their point of view. I think um, so. We were looking for um, interesting area to um, be used for developing a, a, a cacao plantation, cocoa plantation. And we talked a lot about that already. And so uh, let me talk about something differently here, maybe a little bit. Um, so, but that, that was the objective. And um, we were told that this exists. We looked at it and um, we looked at the palms and they were not really producing anymore. And we thought, okay, well, what are we going to do? So we brought in some coconut experts because we weren't. Uh, and it was interesting because they said, well, listen, despite these palms being 30 years old, they have the potential to be brought back into production. You know, you need to get rid of some uh, some pests. You need to be get rid of um, uh, some diseases. But generally speaking, they are in, in good shape. Um, but they've never been fertilized. They've never been really uh, treated for anything. And uh, that's what we started doing. And um, so we are actually bringing something that stopped producing uh, back into full production. I and mean, they will not last forever. We need to replace the palms uh, gradually, you know, with, uh, with uh, new palms, uh, different varieties also to an extent. Uh, and we'll pa- plant um, an extensive cocoa uh, system underneath. Maybe I say cacao here because cocoa and cacao is uh, is very confusing sometimes. Um, so this will be the largest, I can say that already, the largest cacao and coconut uh, production system in the world. It is already organic certified. That was easy to prove that nothing happened. For the last 30 years, yeah. For the last 30 years there, uh, that was very easy to prove. So that already happened, and um, we started developing this project this year. It's a massive effort, clearing the whole undergrowth, you know, treating the palms. Uh, we uh, already employed 190 people, which is a massive uh, thing for that remote area. So people are coming there to work there from uh, from quite a distance. The second phase then will. Uh, see which is starting now see the development of the the cacao uh, system underneath the palms Uh, it's not only that we introduce apiculture so uh, we're going to have 60 million uh, bees uh, on this farm it's it's huge more than 2,000 hectares half of it is forest wow and then the third phase will be the processing so uh, we'll focus on producing coconut oil virgin coconut oil which is a very attractive product coconut sugar, coconut water, of course, then the cacao itself producing honey. And we'll do that with uh, the partners that we uh, found and who are already doing that to an extent in the Dominican Republic. Uh, We do that exclusively with uh, single mothers. So that is um, a key social objective to provide work opportunity for single mothers who do not have any support system in the Dominican Republic. There's very little chance for them to enter the formal work market or employment market. And uh, particularly in this sort of remote rural area where there isn't much. And so that will be a real game game changer. And uh, the, the partners that we're working with, they've already done this in the past, uh, at a smaller scale. And um, together we're basically developing 
this. So it's a, it's a whole value chain with so many facets, which are which are great. So it's 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 an amazing project. And as I said, we have twelve projects, and and each of them has a unique angle and something something really special about it. Um, be it a, a different product, be it in in a in a, in a country like I don't know, like Guatemala, which which is very different uh, in terms of culture uh, than uh, some of the other uh, countries that we're working in. So um, that that's what makes it so interesting. And um, maybe uh, the, just let me say three words on on that portfolio part, just because I touched upon it. There is real value in having a portfolio of different but similar types of projects. Um, so we're working a lot on creating a, a farm manager exchange, uh, real partnership where, where people openly discuss, you know, problems that they face in the farm uh, and to learn from each other, you know. So we're in that sense, uh, our main objective there is also to be a platform and in this case, a knowledge exchange platform where we enable dialogue between, let's say, a farm manager uh, in Colombia, let's say the, the project Macancala I talked about, uh, Adriana, um, to, to talk to the farm managers in the Dominican Republic, Daniel and Mario, um, and to exchange, you know, issues that they face, problems that they encounter. And to visit and see. Yeah. To visit, to learn also. You know, obviously, these people have all done something different and with other companies before, so they bring expertise which may be useful to uh, other farms that have a specific problem or something. So that is a very valuable uh, component in a portfolio, apart from the obvious diversification and, and risk management aspects that a portfolio brings. And where are you going next? Because you've done, or you're working, obviously you're going to do a lot more in cacao, coffee, coconut. What are, from a portfolio perspective, but also from a company perspective, what are other crops yeah, within mm -hmm. large agroforestry systems that you would like to or are already working on to expand that portfolio and basically invest more of that committed money that obviously needs to be needs to be put to work? <laughs> yes. No pressure. And to find new money, of course, as well, you know. Um, okay, a couple of questions. Uh, but um, okay, so first, with the established projects, we're entering a new phase now. Uh, as I said, we... We have invested in seven countries in 12 projects, and now our objective is, is twofold. One is to expand, you know, to create economies of scale. We have set up management teams, uh, companies, and so on, and we want to leverage that, optimize that. But the second aspect is to um, to introduce the, uh, the smallholder and... Uh, um, also reforestation work uh, that maybe has not so much of a profit objective um, and which is very much a part of our value proposition. So <clears throat> what we develop are typically what we call nucleus plasma models. So we build large nucleus farms, but then we surround them uh, with smallholder uh, activity and, and um, technical assistance programs. Uh, that allow the surrounding communities to benefit from what the farm is doing, providing, you know, planting material, uh, knowledge, technology, access to capital, but also access to world markets. Uh, so we, we buy the product at good prices from them. Um, and that is the objective at each farm. 
but uh, phase phase one was to find and build these farms. Phase two is to surround it basically, and uh, then the long term work of you know working on biodiversity, working on uh, changing the the social mesh in, in in the rural landscape. That is something obviously that doesn't change overnight. That's something that we need to work on for decades. So, um, when it comes to new crops, um, we uh, already started looking beyond tropical agriculture, if you want so. So um, what I talked about so far was mostly tropical crops such as uh, uh, cacao, coffee, uh, rubber and bananas, uh, plantains, all the good things that we produce. Um, now, uh, I also just came back from Morocco uh, where we're starting a new project in in the desert almost. Um, uh, which is going to develop, uh, which is going to produce um, dates. So it's a date, date palm system. Um, and uh, there, obviously, we have very different challenges. It's very much about uh, uh, efficiency of water usage, uh, as we are in a very arid environment there. Um, and it's basically the first stepping stone into developing a, a portfolio in, in the dry fruits. And nuts area, uh, which we think is very promising. Um, so the the dates that we are going to produce, uh, it's a very profitable market. Actually, it's a very interesting product. Uh, we're going to be the only organic dates uh, producer in Morocco at this scale, and um, we're planning to diversify that also into uh, other dry fruits and. Uh, um, a nut production, basically, be it almonds, be it pistachios. Uh, there's a lot of interesting models out there. Uh, and that is something that we're very actively pursuing at the moment. And then, obviously, we want to do more. Um, we see a, a lot of um, potential in what I always call the climate action dialogue. So I think that the, the Paris Accord, uh, the Paris Accord uh, has really enabled uh, uh, um, a dialogue with large corporates. You see a lot of uh, large corporates who are signing up to or committing to climate action, but I'm convinced they don't really know yet what that means, other than obviously uh, changing the whole supply chain, the way they do business. And um, we see a lot of demand for... Um, high conservation value projects for carbon forestry. Uh, a lot of uh, companies, uh, the, as you know, the, the carbon markets have seen a, a renaissance. Uh, many companies seek to, to compensate uh, their carbon emissions. So in that space, uh, we're, uh, we have um, something to offer. Uh, and that is something that we're currently developing. Um, and uh, on the other side, you see a lot of... Um, well, I mentioned the confectionery makers, but also other groups, corporate groups, who are seeking to secure, directly secure their supply chain. And um, we're working on partnerships, direct partnerships to create new sustainable product production together with these corporates. So they are willing not only to buy product, but to do more than that, to become uh, invested and a partner. And... Uh, that is something we see more and more and that we want to develop. 
And then, of course, beyond that, to find more institutional investors to to fund these kind of projects and to co-invest with those partners that we bring together. So it's quite an ambitious agenda, but it's obviously also a lot of fun. And that's what we're currently working on. And definitely very necessary. I think the I, I normally always ask, or in the last number of episodes, I ask a question, what would you do if you're in charge of a big portfolio? Why I ask the question? Because I, I think the sector needs to be getting ready to deal with larger numbers and more zeros and be ready for large investors to be active in the space that, like you said, want to put 50 million or 100 million or 200 million to work. But in this case, I think you are managing a large portfolio and obviously not as large as you want to, but you have the experience of, of dealing with larger numbers. So I don't think that question is too relevant, but I would like to ask if you could change one thing in the agriculture and food sector including the forestry, including, let's say, land use overnight. So if you could wave a magic wand and tomorrow morning we wake up and Oliver has changed one thing, what would that be? Well, that is a very good question. So I think um, the other question would have been easier. <laughs> Apart from that, everybody should eat quality chocolate, obviously, but it's uh, an easy... Yeah, but that's something. No, I mean, um, we really believe in trees. That's why we put it in the name of our company, One to Tree. And um, that's not just a fad, but uh, there's a true belief that there is real value in, in agroforests and in combining, in, let's say, generally speaking, in intercropping and combining uh, permanent tree cultures with, with, with annual crops. And uh, I would really wish, because I think that is the solution to, to many problems, be it creating systems that are more climate resilient, creating systems that uh, um, have more uh, soil health uh, uh, and thus uh, more sustainable um, and to create systems that can produce different things more efficiently on the same piece of land. So uh, I think trees are the answer to many of these points. And I would wish that every hectare of agricultural production would somehow be optimize in that regard because there's a lot of pressure on forests everyone knows that the deforestation is continuing um, and a, a large driver of that is agriculture be it the small farmers who don't know any better or be it the large uh, cattle ranchers you know who should know better and uh, that is uh, a massive driver of deforestation unless we don't find ways to stop that and I think agroforestry systems, I mean, they obviously cannot replace a, a primary forest that grew over hundreds of years, but they can take over some of the much needed function that these systems have and had. And so that's what I would wish that really the concept of agroforestry would be embraced worldwide by all sectors that are active in agriculture, because I think it can. It can even be, you know, part of a, uh, of the corn production that you mentioned why not you know and where should investors go to learn more about this in, in a sense like what books to read what websites to visit what places to visit for investors that are listening and thinking yeah of course i'm focusing on soil but i haven't really dove deeper into trees and their function and their role within ecosystems and thus also agriculture what would be a good place to start? Well, the best website is obviously our own, which is... Uh, one, which I will link below, yeah. <laughs> one to 3 d but no, jokes aside. Well, I think an excellent source of 
anything to do with agroforestry is uh, the website of the World Agroforestry Center, which provides on their website so many examples and acting globally of what can be done in this space. And for me, it's an inspiration, all the projects that they're doing and all the, the research and work that they're providing. So that's something. And generally speaking, and I, I do see, you know, to be honest, uh, if you talk about large institutional investors, they know where to go. You know, they come to, let's say, um, the big conferences in the impact investment space. They go to they go to the uh, to the the, the GIN conferences, you know, global impact investment uh, network, um, and. It's, it's interesting to see. I mean, if you went to these conferences five years ago, it was basically dominated by, let's say, uh, high conviction uh, um, impact managers, you know, owners of projects who are doing amazing things out there, and then private individuals who would fund that, you know, foundations or NGOs. What you see now is a completely dialogue. You, first of all, you see uh, these events now have thousands of uh, participants, and I wouldn't say dominated, but uh, uh, there's been a massive influx of, of large banks, uh, pension funds, uh, sustainable investment funds, um, obviously all of them managing uh, billions and trillions of assets, who are going there to learn, to share, um, and um, that is currently happening. So I, I see that scale is coming into the impact investment space. It's much needed. And what is needed to translate that into real dollars and euros on the ground? What's holding them back so far to, because they've been visiting for a number of years and they made big statements and some pension funds cases. <laughs> but then if you really, I mean, the really translation into concrete investments obviously you've one pension fund on board but you've probably had discussions with 50 100 and um, what what is needed over the next years to really unlock that institutional capital yes well i mean first of all i would say um i got the statistics in front of me here on that on that particular topic uh, that growth is happening so i mean if you look at what is considered assets under sustainable investment then as per end of 2018 we're talking about some 31 billion dollars you know invested in that space sorry trillion 31 trillion now that is a lot of screening and such going on um so that's not necessarily what 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 we are about but you also see a tremendous growth rate in the topic of impact and sustainably themed investing um so it is happening but it's not happening at the scale that you may want but is a question also if that industry is ready to do that. Uh, so to scale up, as I said, you need to have those or provide those opportunities to actually deploy a $50 million ticket. Um, and ideally not only one, because uh, obviously these kind of investors don't like to be 100% uh, owner. More than 20% of the fund, yeah. Um, so you need to create opportunities that are 300, 500 million dollars in size and that are diversified and so on so let's say create large portfolios doesn't necessarily have to be a fund that's one thing the other is transparency and you need to be able to measure impact 
So, and that is a complicated thing. It's not yet fully standardized. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of good tools out there, but what happens more and more is that investors are asking, okay, well, I know this has a good positive impact, but how good is it? You know, how good is your project in comparison to this other project? So you need to be able to make it comparable. And so it's all about standardization, about reporting, which are tools that may sound boring to some but they are important to create. They're definitely not the most sexy thing, but that's why we're recording this. That's the, because we need that to build the infrastructure, to build the pipes. You need certain standards because uh, those institutional investors, they need to report, they need to explain and justify what they're doing. And that means they, they need to be able to, to demonstrate the, the impact, which is becoming more and more important uh, to them as a reporting um, grid as well. Um, to be able to to demonstrate that in a tangible and, and trusted way, basically, so that it is yeah, it absolutely becomes comparable. So that is one aspect. It's as you say, is maybe not the most sexy aspect for someone who's uh, developing in the field projects, but it's something that uh, is important. Um, and you you do see that. Just to give you one example, SDG investing. You know, they, I'm always saying the the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. Uh, the way they design them and present them, it's it's a, it's a, it, it's genius, um, and it's it's catchy. You know, it's it's simplifying. It's uh, I'm not saying there's no greenwashing happening with that, but people can relate to those different objectives, and there's a lot of you know uh, association of 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 activities, investment activities with various uh, ESG objectives happening, and that makes it very clear and simple. A simple message to relay: This project supports these kind of objectives. You know, be it be it uh, hunger, be it education, be it uh, climate action. You know, it can be very different kind of things. And that's a way where standardization works in transporting the message. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. It made it a very simplified to-do list, but actually underneath some very detailed objectives, which many people. I definitely would urge anybody to dive into it. It's not an investment list. No, no, no. But it's definitely, it's a very concrete to-do list we have with very concrete targets on almost everything. Of course, a few things are missing and there's a lot of discussion about that, but it's a great start for a simplified language and also a visual language because everybody knows the 17 tiles, basically. And you see them popping up on every investment presentation and deck, et cetera, which means it's sort of working and obviously... Ask your questions, dive deeper. Well, that's what, I'm, that's what I meant with greenwashing, of course. I mean, it's... Dive deeper and ask your questions because most of it is noise, but there are interesting people developing very interesting things. Yeah, exactly. And to end with a final question, I, I used a lot, we used a lot of time, but I think it was extremely interesting. But I want to end with the um, reforestation because we touched upon it with the coconut part, but if you would have a blank slate, can you paint a picture of how an ideal agroforestry system for you would look like could be theoretical could be based on a on a current project you have invested in have bought etc how would an ideal agroforestry system for an investor just to imagine if they close their eyes and they're listening to this audio mm -hmm. how would that look like well that's not an easy question i mean obviously i could say this particular project that we're currently developing is the ideal project but maybe i start with the ideal objectives that it would fulfill from my point of view and then we see how that could be done. And I'll try to keep it short. So for me, it's not only about the production system 
that you install. And yes, that needs to be more biodiverse and it needs to create healthy soil um, whilst you're producing and basically maintaining it. And, and, and there's a lot of good research out there how to do that and how to combine different crops to have a sort of stable system that can uh, be maintained in a healthy way with as little inputs, additional inputs as possible. No? And then, by the way, I'm not an expert on that. So uh, I'm sure there's many people out there who, who know an awful lot more than me about this. I'm more concerned about the additional objectives that this creates, you know, how to integrate these projects into a landscape, into a community, uh, into a societal makeup, and the positive impacts that this can have. So on the one hand, you have a producing agricultural system or a forestry project, it uh, doesn't matter in that regard, but think about all the, the good things that you can achieve with it in terms of formal employment on the farm, which creates a lot of opportunity. And then also when it comes to education and so on for future generations, it keeps people where they are. So they don't have to migrate to urban centers and then ultimately uh, end up at the borders of Europe or the US. And uh, uh, all this sort of migration pressure ultimately stems from the lack of opportunity in rural areas in, in poor countries. Uh, deforestation, uh, you can actively fight there by introducing trees into your system and then beyond that supporting the maintenance and, and reinvigoration of, of, of biodiversity in the surrounding forests and, and, and habitats that you have there. And of course, social work in the communities uh, uh, themselves and to really strengthen that and you know, source locally, sell locally. So don't only sort of buy machinery from Europe, produce there and then export back to Europe, but actually try to become part of the local regional value chain so that, you know, you create beyond beyond the farm, you're creating jobs in supply chains and restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's all the things that can happen if you are designing a project in a good way that it interacts with its environment, basically. And it's just, as I always say, it's not just an alien spaceship that landed somewhere, does precision agriculture, and then after a while disappears again and it takes off again, you know. So that is super important. How the system itself looks? Well, obviously, there is a trade-off. The trade-off lies between efficient production and producing as many different things on the same piece of land as possible. Um, so um, if people think about agroforestry, they may think of like a farmer garden, you know, with like lots of great things and flowers and I don't know. Um, that's not how we can produce, you know. I mean, that's not how I can uh, run a large, several thousand hectares large production system. It needs to be efficient. Uh, it needs to use uh, mechanization machinery to an extent, uh, obviously as low impact uh, as possible. Uh, and a lot of design needs to go into that, uh, and a lot of additional research. Um, so, the, for me, the ideal system is is one that actually achieves that. That on the one hand, I have what I would say is sufficient biodiversity in the production system that allows, you know, insects and and uh, uh, birds and 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 all sorts of wildlife to actually uh, also. Um, find a habitat in the farm 
you know, and use the farm as a stepping stone between forest areas, say, to have a healthy soil uh, that is well maintained um, and taken care of by an experienced farm management team, because you know the healthy soil uh, is something yet that you don't really see. It's not as easy as showing, hey, we got jaguars on our farm. You know, that's nice, but um, that jaguar actually doesn't contribute that much. It's more an indicator of a healthy system. Uh, whereas the healthy soil, you know, it also has a real benefit to your production system. You know, it, it, it stops diseases from spreading and obviously maintains the production system for decades to come. And so I cannot give you a specific, this is how the perfect system should look like. But those are the kind of topics that it needs to solve and address. And then it is a perfect system in my view. I think it's a, it's a really good answer because the perfect system doesn't exist. It's so, as you describe it, it really comes to mind, holistic decision making, the framework that holistic management uses in many cases in grazing and, and livestock, but it's really, it's place-based. So the perfect system exists in one place because, and even there, perfect doesn't mean anything because as you mentioned, there's still so much research needed and to see where these systems could go. I, I just released an interview on Syntropic Agroforestry and there's these people experimenting in some cases for many years, but experimenting of where agroforestry could go. And obviously there, also the big question is of how complex can it be while it's still manageable and what kind of mechanization tools we actually need. And so we're, we're just scratching pun intended the surface of what is possible with, with land use and agriculture and, and also in sea, obviously. And I think that's what makes it so exciting. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time. We took a lot of time, but I think there was a lot to discuss. And as we're taking a list, there are so many other podcasts to, to dive deeper into this, but I will be, we'll keep that for another time. Thank you so much, Oliver, for taking the time this, uh, this Friday morning and I'm very much looking forward to keep checking in with you and how one two three is is doing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity, and I hope you do a good editing job to bring this down from two hours. <laughs> we don't do a lot of editing, so it's going to be a full release. But I think we're going to do a summary as well, which is going to be a challenge to cut because it's always difficult to cut it down to ten minutes or fifteen minutes. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.